can be seated. Father, on this Pentecost weekend, make our hearts ready for the truth of your word that you would deposit like a seed deep into our heart that would bear much fruit. Thinking back, Father, to history where the world was divided at the Tower of Babel by uncommon languages that confused them so they could not understand one another. But on this weekend, marking a remembrance and a celebration of some 2,000 years ago where you brought the world back together through a common supernatural language, not one that we would use to speak to one another necessarily, but one that we would use to worship you. Remembering that when the world became divided at Babel, it was because they wanted to make a name for themselves. But here on this Pentecost weekend, may it be that we would devote our lives all of our days for the rest of our days through a praise that would well up deep within our spirit, washing over our soul, bursting forth from our mouths to make a name for you and you alone on this Pentecost weekend. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. How about that spoken word, huh? Wow. Wow. So good. So good. You know, one of the reasons why the arts are an important part of the City Life Church, it is not because we are trying to be contemporary. It is not because we are trying to be modern. It's because we're trying to get ancient. You, you, you cannot read in the Bible, especially, especially in Psalms, and, and, and not see that the arts are a part of the Imago Dei. Because God is many things at the essence of who he is, but one of them is that he is a creator. God cannot help but create and and, and when the Bible tells us that we're made in the likeness and the image of God, there is a part of us because we bear the Imago Dei, we bear the image and the likeness of God. Something inside of us wants to create. And so when we do, we are pointing the world to him. That's why the arts are an important part of who we are at City Life. We're celebrating the Imago Dei becoming ancient, like the example of all those who love God who came before us. Hey, let me just give a couple announcements and we're going to dive deep into this series. I got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so settle in. One is that we just want to make you an announcement because in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the, the mask mandate has been lifted, that we are lifting that mandate for us here at City Life and all future events with some exception, with some exception. Child care workers here at City Life will continue to wear masks, and then also children that are elementary school age that go into workshop, that they will also be asked to wear masks. It is, so if you've got children that age, we've got boxes and boxes and boxes of disposable masks that those children will be able to, to use. We're always going to err on the side of caution when it comes to our children. Amen? Always going to err on the side of 
side of caution. And then when it comes to your personal decision as to whether or not you're going to wear a mask, then we're just trusting that you're going to make a wise, prayerful decision that you're going to follow through on, recognizing that in all of us making wise, prayerful decisions, we might end up in different places in our decision, but we're going to make room for each other. We're going to make room for each other. We also recognize that even though there's not a requirement for social distancing moving forward, we're still going to provide that in this middle section for people who might prefer that. And we're going to do that for at least the summer and then just measure and, and, and see how it goes. But we want people, when, as they come in, if, if, if you're comfortable with not being in the social distance seating, you can sit on the side wings or the balcony. And then if you're looking for social distancing, then you can find that in the middle. If you've got questions about that, about how we came to those decisions, then you can reach out to me or any one of our leaders and, and we'd be more than happy to talk about those with you further. This series that we are in Shema, the Shema series, Shema is a Hebrew word that means hear and obey. Because in Hebrew, those are not two separate words like it is in English. In Hebrew, they are two sides of the same coin. It's one concept. The idea is that when we hear God, there should be an obedience that reflexively follows I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. I hope that you want the reflex of your heart to be one of obedience to God. This scale that you're going to see on the screen really speaks to all the different parts of who we are as people. None of us are just all of one of these things. In some areas of our life, we might have a sense of reflexive obedience. There are some areas of our life where we might be reluctant, where we know God's asking us to start doing something or stop doing something, and sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. We wrestle with whether or not we're going to follow, even though we know that we should. That's reluctance. And then there's just out-and-out rebellion, and all of us have some of that in us, too. Part of this journey, part of this idea of Shema, it's a lifelong journey. I want to move as much as who I am into a place of reflexive obedience. Now, we're not going to get all the way there, but let's get a little bit closer tomorrow than we are today. Jesus is the only person, fully God, fully man, who was completely reflexive in his obedience to the Father when he was here on the earth. He is our example, and we follow that. Now, we're not sending you out of here saying, okay, so tomorrow just try harder. One, two, three, go. Right? You have to be strategic. Discipleship for us, there's a strategy. There is an approach. There are steps that you can take. And this model that we are teaching you in this series is based on some of the teachings of a gentleman by the name of Don Gelpie. If you want to learn more about that, then go back to the beginning of this series. It's a message called Reflexive where we talk about him and the history and where it comes from. But as you see on this diagram that's going to pop up on the screen, we want to close the listen and obey gap that's in our lives. We want those two points to come together to become one, to walk in Shema, Matthew 7, talking about building our lives on a solid rock. And the way I believe that we close that gap is through these five conversions of the soul. Conversion simply means to change. You and I need a heart change in all of these areas of our lives. Let me read these verses to you. This is Mark 4, 38 to 41. It says, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. This is both a scriptural reference for both boating and napping. Praise the Lord. 
The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Then Jesus woke up. He rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly, or dare I say reflexively, the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and the waves obey him. How about Mark 3, 11 to 12? And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. But Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was Ask yourself this question. Are oceans and demons doing a better job with obedience than I am? Is Mother Nature, does Mother Nature have a better Shema than myself? Do, do, does the demonic realm and evil itself that is the enemy of God have a better Shema than I do? As the son of the Father, may it not be. These conversions are not going to be easy. We're talking about retooling who we are as people on the inside, battling human nature, endeavoring to become like Christ in every way and in every sense. And I believe that one of the most telling measures of spiritual maturity is my Shema. One of the most telling measures of my spiritual maturity is my Shema, how reflexive in obedience am I in every area of my life? The more spiritually mature I am, the less rebellious and the re less reluctant I should be. So of these five conversions, we're going to tackle intellectual conversion tonight. Intellectual conversion. Let me give you the definition I found these, I learned about these in a book that I was reading years ago called Moses in Pharaoh's House, and the author referenced Don Gelpi. I did not know who Don Gelpi was, and the more I began to study and, and, and research, the more excited I became. And this definition is the one we're using for intellectual conversion that comes from Don Gelpi. It says, intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity, the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining them and testing them. It's not saying that you're posturing yourself in this life to be the sole person that's going to help every other person discover the falsity of their beliefs and assuming that all of yours are true, right? That's called Facebook. It's acknowledging that I have a responsibility to look at my own beliefs, to test them, to examine them, being willing to admit that I'm fallible as a human being. Here's some quotes out of the book Moses in Pharaoh's House. Intellectual conversion requires one to adopt an attitude of contrite fallibleness. Contrite fallibleness that acknowledges the limited nature of one's personal view of the world. Here's another one. People who are actively engaged in an ongoing process of intellectual conversion exhibit a love of truth that transcends any particular belief that they might have, meaning that you love truth more than you love being right. That's hard for us. It's hard for us. Mark 12, 30. 
When they asked Jesus the two greatest commandments, right, he starts by saying, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is an intellectual journey that we go on in our relationship with our Creator and our Heavenly Father. There is a way that we love God with our mind. There is a way that we love God with our intellect because part of loving God is embracing His truth. And part of this truth relationship that we have involves the way that we think. There is no Shema without intellectual conversion. There is no Shema without intellectual conversion. So I want to talk to you tonight about four things that truth is that I believe are going to help you in your journey. And then there's going to be lots of questions that I'm going to give to you. You can always download these notes. But these conversions are going to become part of what we do when we're helping people grow to become like Christ. Psalm 119, 160 reads this way. The very essence of your words is truth. Come on. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. No expiration date. No expiration date. You know why? Because truth is undefeated. Truth is undefeated. Now, if you're a sports fan like I am, we like to have conversations about who the GOAT is in different sports all the time. Like, you know, how Michael Jordan is the GOAT regardless of what you might believe otherwise. Because all of us have falsities that we are bought into, and I'm here to help you with yours when it comes to basketball. I know. Whether or not you believe that Tom... I can't even say his last name. I'm not going to do it. I can't. I can't. He can't come out of my mouth. I can't. I can't, I can't curse in church. Oh, I know. See, we, I, I listen to sports radio all the time. We, we, we love it. Talking about who the, the greatest of all time. Truth is the greatest of all time. Because from the beginning of time, truth is undefeated. Truth is undefeated. That's why I asked Claire to do that spoken word about confident pluralism because confident pluralism is an important part of us experiencing truth. Exposing our falsities. See, confident pluralism does not mean we are okay with everyone having their own version of truth. That's not what we mean when we say confident pluralism. That is not what we mean. Confident pluralism, listen to this, means we are accepting of others who believe differently in order to create an environment for the truth of any matter to reveal itself. Confident pluralism means we are accepting of others who believe differently in order to create an environment for the truth because sometimes it's your falsity that needs to change. The truth of any matter will reveal itself. Truth is undefeated. So if you create an environment where people can bring their truth to the marketplace, we trust that truth will manifest itself because truth is undefeated. See, the best way to be heard is not by being louder, contrary to popular belief. The best way to be heard is to listen. The best way to be heard is not by being louder. The best way to be heard is to listen. Truth does not need your vote to be right. It does not. 
But you know what it does need by God's design? By God's design in the human experience, it does need your influence. It needs your influence. Truth is truth by virtue of what it is, the very essence of God's word. But you know what God says to us? You take my truth now into the world and influence the world with this truth. In the same way that much of the truth that you have embraced, you have it because someone you trust influenced you. Truth doesn't need influence to be right, but it needs influence to spread. So protect your voice. Protect your voice. It's not going to be enough for you and I to get to heaven and say to God, wasn't I right about so many things? Yeah. And God's going to say, yeah. But it's that kind of attitude that kept anybody else from listening to what you had to say. Am I earning the right to be heard by listening intently to others? Am I earning the right to be heard by listening intently to others? Matthew 24, 35 reads this way, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Wow. Wow. There's no expiration date on truth. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words, Jesus is talking about his words, my words will never disappear. There is a difference between truth and knowledge. Much of the knowledge that we have is true, but not all of the knowledge that we have is true because we are flawed. So some of the things that we believe to be true might in fact be a falsity. And the way that we discover that is by diving deep into this book, with each other. Listen to me, love creates an environment where truth can challenge knowledge safely. Love creates an environment where truth can challenge knowledge safely. So I wonder the reason we're gonna to get to it in a minute in 1 Corinthians 13, which is known as the love chapter, talks so much about love, but you know what else it talks about? It talks about knowledge. Because Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to help the church of Corinth to understand it's not enough to just be right. You need to be loving so you can influence a lost world with the truth that God has revealed to you. Protect your voice. Am I earning the right to be heard by listening intently to others? Truth is undefeated. That's number one. Number two, truth is learned. Somebody say learned. Truth is learned. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, who Harrison loves, so good, wasn't it? Love Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples. If you're faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
1 Corinthians 2, 13 to 16 says this, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, right? We just read that. Using the Spirit's word to explain spiritual truth. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. It's talking about here, when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And we begin to understand things that before were so elusive. Those who are spiritual, meaning they've made a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. They've been born into God's family. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated others. Now, here, what I believe, when it says they themselves, it's not talking about the people, it's talking about the things. Because we understand that the rest of Scripture says that we are supposed to be evaluated, right? Our character is supposed to be judged. So when it says those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated. It's talking about the things, because Paul's going back to this idea that if you don't have the mind of Christ, spiritual things are hard to understand. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? He asks a rhetorical question because he's getting ready to answer it. Who knows enough to teach him? But we, listen to what he says, understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Here is the problem. You have another mind that you can also think with, and that's your human mind. Just because you've made a vow of devotion to Christ doesn't mean that you now become infallible in all of your thoughts. You have the mind of Christ, but that's not the only mind that you have. And it takes time and discipline and learning and teaching and being around others who are further along than we are to learn how to think with the mind that Christ has given us instead of the one that Adam gave us. Truth is learned. Because truth and falsities are learned, both are learned, because truth and falsities are learned, I must acknowledge that there are some things I presently believe to be true that are in fact false. I have to start by posturing myself as being fallible. You and I are not Jesus. He lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us but we're still flawed. We are forgiven, but we are flawed. We are not perfect in all of our thoughts. We are not perfect in all of our conclusions. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. Come on, put a stamp on it right there. This is Paul talking about people who are devoted followers of Christ. In, 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 in chapter two, he's saying, hey, there is a difference between those who are spiritual and unspiritual. There is an advantage because we have the mind of Christ. But then you get to chapter 13, he's saying, even though we have the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, lives inside of us, our knowledge is still incomplete because we're still people. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, when we're in heaven, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. 
Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then they will see everything with perfect clarity talking about when we're in heaven. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. This is Paul himself talking. Come on. If he's fallible, how much more are we? But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. There will come a time in our existence where we will not be encumbered by ignorance. That in that perfect place of paradise with the Father, it's saying that all the mysteries that elude us now, we will know them as fully as God knows us. And that's all the way, people. That's all the way. But until we get there, there must be an acknowledgement of the fallibility of who we are. First Corinthians 12 is important because it precedes 1 Corinthians 13. See, the content is not just divinely inspired, so is the order. The Holy Spirit inspired how it was put together. In chapter 12 matters. The fact that it comes before 13 matters. Why? Because here, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is teaching us one of the ways that we deal with our imperfect knowledge is through diversity. Diversity is not just ethnic diversity. There's all kinds of diversity. There's social diversity. There's economic diversity. There's generational diversity. There's geographical diversity. And you know what else there's? There's diversity of spiritual gifts. People who have different spiritual gifts see the world through different lenses by God's design. Paul is teaching us that one of the ways we deal with our imperfect knowledge is through diversity. Here he speaks of diversity that comes from spiritual gifts. Arrogance narrows my community while diversity expands my community. You don't want to live in an echo chamber, people. If you find yourself relationally in the world where everybody around you, as far as you can reach and see, thinks the exact same way that you do about everything, you've not won. You've lost. Because none of us are going to get it all right until we get there. So I don't know about you, but I want to plant myself in as many diverse environments that I can because I want to discover all of the falsities that I have. And one of the reasons why falsities are so dangerous is that you don't even recognize that you have them. Here we go. Am I courageous enough to test my truth with diverse relationships? Am I courageous enough to test my truth with diverse relationships? Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. That experience of being sharpened is not always pleasant. But can we just agree that it is deeply fulfilling Number three, truth is forgiving. Truth is forgiving. If you can't be kind and gentle, then be quiet and listen. 
If you can't be kind and gentle, be quiet and listen. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about how you deal with people. I'm not saying that you can't be angry and loud and boisterous and upset when it comes to ideas and concepts and systems. There's nothing wrong with that because there's a whole lot of this in there too. Have you read the prophets in the Old Testament? But we can be loud and boisterous and angry and upset when it comes to ideas and thoughts and concepts and systems. But when we're dealing with people, we're expected to deal with them as a person, even if their ideas are the things that we're upset about. What the person should get from me is the character of Christ. Colossians 3 13 to 14. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Wow. wow. Right there. Above all. That's what, what is Paul saying here? Paul, Paul's saying, he's just written this, this letter to the church of Colossae. That's what it's called, the book of Colossians. He's saying, I've, I've said a lot to you in this letter, but, but, but now what I'm saying is above all else, out of everything that I've said to you, focus in on this. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Not perfect agreement, perfect harmony. Because love creates an environment and a culture where it's safe for knowledge to be tested to determine whether or not it's truth. It does not need our vote to be right, but it borrows our influence to spread. Am I patient and humble and forgiving of others as their relationship with truth matures? Am I patient and humble and forgiving of others as their relationship with truth matures? Now, are there some exceptions to being kind and gentle with people? And the answer to that is yes, it is. We did a series, one of my favorite series that we've done here called Apolitikos back in the fall. This idea of the menacing side to who God is. You should check that out if you've not seen it or heard it. In Matthew 16, 21 to 24, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but one of Jesus' closest friends is Peter. And there, Peter is telling him, so Jesus is saying, I've got to go die. And Peter's saying, that's not right. You're not going to do that. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, Peter, if I could just pull you aside and just talk to you for a moment. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but if a friend ever says that to you, that might not be what you were expecting when you're thinking about kindness and gentleness. So we know that there are times where we also, it's appropriate to be angry and upset and aggressive with a person. This is the difference, people. It cannot be because it's a cathartic moment for you because you're just trying to get something off your chest. 
This moment where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he's not being cathartic. He's saying that because he loves Peter and he realizes this is what Peter needs, especially because what Peter's about to face. If we're ever going to be angry and upset and aggressive with a person, it cannot be about making ourselves feel better. There is a time to be menacing, but it must be because that is what the other person needs because they are in danger either spiritually or physically. If your child is about ready to step out into traffic and a car is coming, gentleness is not your first response. You're gonna snatch that kid up and jerk them out of the way. If you're not within reach, there is a roar that is gonna well up inside of you as a parent that will frighten the bejeebas out of that child. But you did not do anything wrong. It's not about being cathartic. It's because that person needs protection. Now, if that's who you are all the time, then you're out of balance with your life. That's not who Jesus was all the time. But he was that sometimes. Am I patient and humble and forgiving of others as their relationship with truth matters? Number four, truth is complicated. Now, you're not going to like this one. You might say, well, Fred, I haven't liked any of these. <laughs> truth is complicated. And if you don't think truth is complicated, just I'm going to come at you a little bit. You're part of the problem. You're part of the problem. If you don't think that truth is ever complicated, it's because you're not willing to acknowledge that there are things in this world that are true that are beyond your, and I'm including myself here, beyond my intellectual capacity to understand. There are people in this world that are much smarter than me. Many of them. Many of them. And just because something is elusive for me, if I just start labeling all of that stuff as false because I can't understand it, I'm just telling you, that's called arrogance. I have to be willing to acknowledge that there are some things that are just beyond myself. I also have to be willing, which I'm going to get to, be willing to accept that because I am fallible, I am also fallible in my interpretation of this book. The Holy Spirit's not infallible in teaching it to me. The Word itself is not infallible. But because I have the mind of Christ and the mind of Adam, sometimes I don't know which one I'm thinking with. And you can end up at the end of a journey of deciding what is true for you. And you can have a brother and sister in Christ who could be asking the same question and end up in a completely different place. And you both believe that you are right. You both believe that what you have embraced is true, even though those two ideas are not reconcilable. I've got to be willing to make room for other people in this world to come to conclusions that are different than my own. Now, does that mean that I'm willing to negotiate truth? I'm not saying that, people. I'm saying we've got to do a better job of not negotiating relationships because we can't agree on what truth is. Do we hold to some things firmly here at the City Life Church? You better believe we do. 
things that are non-negotiable for us, 10 commandments, the timeless didactic texts of the Bible. What does that mean? Everywhere in the Bible where it clearly says, do this, blank, 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 blank. Don't do this, blank, 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 blank. Right? There's nothing confusing about those texts. Those are didactic texts. Those are instructive texts. Do this, don't do that. There's no expiration date on those things. They are timeless. Sins that lead to death. Bible talks about that in the New Testament. Another sermon for another time. If there is a list in the Bible and it ends with sins that leads to death, something inside of us, it should give us pause. The orthodox beliefs of Christianity. We just did a series called Doxa where we gave to you seven foundational truths. If you didn't watch, listen to that series, check it out. Seven core beliefs of Christianity. Those are non-negotiables for us as a church. In fact, I would say if you don't believe those things, then let's go on a journey together. But at some point, you will be uncomfortable here at the City Life Church. But there's a whole lot of things, people, as devoted followers of Christ that we hold personal views to, that you have personal views to, that we're going to end up in different places I'm not going to teach on these. I'm just listing these here. Consumption of alcohol. The Bible gives a prohibition against drunkenness, but all kinds of Christians have all different kinds of conclusions about alcohol consumption. Limits on women in ministry. Spiritual language, whether or not it's for everyone. Tithing as a New Testament principle. Sunday only as a day of worship. Hello. (laughs) Teenage dating. Oh, I got some ideas on that. (laughs) Divorce and remarriage, when it's appropriate, when it's not. How people vote politically. Just in this room alone, with just this little list alone, people watching online, just this little list alone, I'm telling you, if we had the time and we looked at each one and then had maybe the multiple different options that people tend to fall in for each of these and everybody would go stand in the circle, right, that they resonate with, you, I, you might be surprised at where some of your friends go to. <laughs> Truth is complicated. When you are at odds with someone, I want to give you these four simple questions that you can ask. This is important. If we're going to stop negotiating relationships when we can't get on the same page with truth, we like to say here that even when we can't be of one mind, we're going to be of one heart. Can I support their motivation? Can I respect their process? Can I celebrate their character? And Can I trust their friendship? Those are four great questions to ask. Because if you can say yes to all four of those things, even if it's something that is a deep conviction for you and then what it is for them is also a deep conviction and you can't agree, it doesn't mean that you can't be together in friendship, in trusting friendship. I got lots of pastors, deep friends. I would not go to their church. And you know what? You're not gonna find them here either if they weren't in vocational ministry. Because we just don't see eye to eye on a lot of these things. But you know what? It doesn't mean that we love each other any less. It doesn't mean that we're not there for each other when times are tough, when our days are hard. It doesn't mean that we don't reach out to each other and pray for one another. Even though we might be on different planets at sometimes it feels theologically, we recognize that truth is complicated. 
And even when we can't be of one mind, we are going to be of one heart. Romans 14, if you've never read it, check it out. For the sake of time, again, I'm not going to go there, but Paul teaches us about three concepts that we teach them every year at City Life Church in some way or another. Universal morality, matters of conscience, and forgoing liberties. All things that are wrong and categorized as sin fall into one of those buckets. The problem is we want to put everything in universal morality, even when it's just a matter of conscience. So here's my last question for these four truths. Am I someone who tends to impose my conscience on others? See, just because it's true for you in certain situations and certain circumstances, you got to stop imposing that on other people. Am I someone who tends to impose my conscience on others? Truth is undefeated, people, and it is learned, it is forgiving, and it is complicated. You start digging, and those four places, I'm telling you, your journey towards intellectual conversion will be off to a great start, and you'll be reaching for Shema like never before. All five of these conversions are vital for you and for me to close my listening and hearing and obedience gap, for me to be that person that Jesus talks about. In Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, about someone who builds our lives on the solid rock. So I'm going to read these quotes to you one more time as the band makes their way back up. Intellectual conversion requires one to adopt an attitude of contrite fallibleness that acknowledges the limited nature of one's personal view of the world. People who are actively engaged in, ongoing, in an ongoing process of intellectual conversion exhibit a love of truth that transcends any particular belief they might have. I want those two statements to describe me as a person. I don't know about you, but this whole message sounds a lot to me like Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Think intellectual conversion. We're going to go back into a moment of worship here in just a minute. These aren't going to appear on the screen, but again, you can get them when you download the notes. But these are some great questions for you to start asking yourself. If this idea of an intellectual conversion is new for you, do I tend to see everything in life as either right or wrong? Do I deal with diversity of opinion even when it is an area of great concern? How, do, do I deal well with diversity of opinion even when it is an area of great concern for me? Do I consider other points of view before making a judgment? How many fundamental shifts, this is a good one, how many fundamental shifts in thinking have I undergone in my life? Because if you've undergone none, well, you know. How about fundamental shifts in the way that you've been thinking just in the last 12 months? Can you find one? Can you find one? Stand with me. Jesus.
Father, as we step into this time of worship together, I pray that for all of us, whether we're in the room or whether we're watching online, that we would take some steps towards Jesus, what you said is the greatest commandment. To love the Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want your truth to be in us and only your truth in us. And we want your character to be in us so that we can be effectual in bringing that truth to our world. And in Jesus, it's your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.